It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is actor, comic, and writer Bill Dawes, who is headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas, January 7th through the 10th, with showtimes at 8.30 and 10.30. For ticket information, go to troplv.com, and for everything about Bill Dawes, go to billdawes.com, and you can follow him on Instagram, at Bill Dawes. And of course, his After Laugh podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, etc. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good, Good. to be here. I had a question which has been bugging me about you, and that is you have an aerospace engineering degree from Princeton <laughs> University, correct? Yeah, wow, okay. what a coincidence. It's also bugging my parents. <laughs> yes, so that was your major, but clearly your minor was in comedy. Well, you know, I, where I went to college, and I'm going to name drop, so I went to Princeton University. Excellent. Which sounds very, you know, it sounds like it's a, quite an accomplishment, but really, I think I was just like the minority quota for the school. So, um, <laughs> but I went there. Wait, wait, which, my, which minority? The uneducated? Well, it's kind of a joke because I joke. I said my high school is 70% black and 30% terrified. And was, <laughs> my English teacher had written a paper about how sort of like the inherent racism in schools like Princeton and Harvard and Yale that had let in very good students from like rough and tumble public schools, including my brothers who were way smarter than me and were both number one in their class. And then they'd both been rejected by Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And next year I applied after he wrote that article and I got in. So I think it was kind of like a weird white guilt thing that Princeton let me in. <laughs> now, you're, both your brothers are doctors, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, one, well, you know, that's, that's also up for today. So one is an, an MD, an ER doctor, and the right. other one's a professor. So, you know, a lot of MDs don't think PhDs are actually doctors. That's the big one on with Jill Biden right now. I was like, call her Dr. Biden, do we have to? But I think, though, I think your brother that has a PhD could perform medical practices <laughs> if he had first aid class. So I think it could work. That's true. That's yeah. true. And they're both married to doctors. So that's one of, that's one of a joke I do that is really a true story where when we go to, you know, I'm single right now. And so when I go to family functions, my dad introduced well, when, when you could have family functions, when there were holidays. <laughs> You're right. My dad introduces us, Dr. Dawes, Dr. Dawes, Dr. Dawes, Dr. Dawes, and Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're distinctive in that family, aren't you? Yes. For sure. Yes, in a negative sort of way. Yes, it's good to be a black sheep. <laughs> so when you, <laughs> you got accepted, I'm not quite sure what minority to put you in because you are about six foot, you're blonde, you have blue eyes. I think you're Irish, so uh, which of those are our minority feature? I don't know. No, I just mostly mean like what, like my school was very, I was, uh... Oh, you were the minority, you were the minority in your school, you were the minority in your school. I was a minority in my school, Yeah. and when I went to Princeton, people thought I was a, there was a word that they would use for me, and they would call me a wigger, which is not a PC word. Right. I guess the PC word would be African American. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I was a break dancer. I dressed kind of hip hop, <laughs> so I didn't really fit in there. And I saw your rap sheet, which is not, by the way, in prison, but the fact that you did rap. <laughs> well, I have never. Oh, now that now that was a gratuitous laugh. That was not an authentic laugh. 
Bill, I, yeah. but, but thank you for trying. I appreciate I'm a ter- that. Well, because well, I'm a terrible rapper. So you get through with Princeton and somehow, and I still can't figure out why you picked aerospace engineering as opposed to, I don't know, not following your brothers, but just coming up with some other, some well, other kind of. my dad of... was an engineer, so he, he tried to get us all into engineering. And so we were pretty good at math. I think it's one of those things in high school, like it's hard to know who you are and what you want to be in high school. It's a very weird thing that in high school they tell you, hey, go to a college to do the thing that you want to do for the rest of your life. And you're like, uh, I just want to go to college and figure it out. Yeah, and that's where you learn. Right. Yeah, a lot of colleges are like that now. Like, um, I have a, a daughter who just got into Berkeley, and she and Berkeley is like, well, you don't have to, you don't have to choose anything until you're a junior. So, but yeah, so we had I had to pick a major, and I just figured uh, English. I don't want to read a I don't want to read a bunch of boring books that I'm just going to read the cliff notes for because I like reading, but I, not so much that I want to read a 900 page book on translated from the original Sanskrit or whatever. Right. So I I couldn't think of any other major I wanted to do, and Princeton didn't have a theater major, nor did I ever do any theater at that point. Interesting. But I took a an acting class because, you know, the thing about the engineering degree at Princeton, it has a heavy course load. It's like a 40-credit course load, and so you have to choose electives, and the electives, I, I chose like a creative writing elective, and then I just said, well, what's a good way? And I read an interview about John Malkovich, and he basically followed the girl around registration day at, in college, and she signed for acting class. So, he signed for, so I was like, oh, it's a good way to meet girls. <laughs> so that's really the only reason I signed for acting class was to meet girls, <laughs> which I think is true for most people, whether it's college or not, down the line. Yeah, I think, in fact, now that I realize it, that was your minor, meeting girls. Yeah, well, it's theater and dance, so yeah. Yeah, I did get a minor. They have some a certificate, so I, I, I had a minor in theater and dance. Right, but in that in that degree, I think it said meeting girls was part of that program. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Particularly particularly dance. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're if you're a straight dancer, you're you're quite the commodity. Oh yeah. Did you in fact spend any time in aerospace engineering once you left Princeton? No. As a matter of fact, the thing that was happening for Princeton for me was. There are a few engineering jobs, and in terms of headhunters that would come to Princeton to look for people, they weren't looking at me because I wasn't in the top 10. Obviously, I mean, by, by my senior year, I was skating by. I did the bare minimum I could. I was pretty sure I didn't want to be an engineer. I went to Nassau. There was a branch of Nassau in New Jersey, so I went there, and I looked around. I saw the cubicles and all the nerds in cubicles, and I was like, I don't know if this is right for me. So I never had an interview with NASA, and then oh, I thought you meant the I thought you meant the island when you said NASA. Okay, I, I see what you're saying. No, yeah, no, na- well, NASA, NASA. Yeah, there you go. NASA. So never, uh, you know, I never really interviewed for NASA. And um, did you interview for NASA though? Because I think an island job would be great better. for you. Yeah, uh, pool boy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my that's my southern white trash one. NASA. NASA. So um, well, as a pool boy, you can meet girls. Come on. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then, and then, but there, there, there was a lot of head hunting for uh, Wall Street at that time when I was graduating. You know, it was in the '90s, so it was like a lot. Yeah, a lot of people in the late '90s were looking to get engineers for financial consulting, and there were a couple of financial consulting firms I reached out and I interviewed, and I just I had a briefcase and a suit, and I was in New York City, and I interviewed for one, and 
he asked me why I wanted to work for, I don't know, Lehman Brothers or Morgan Stanley. And I'd heard someone's answer. So I heard someone rehearsing their answer. So I started like reciting back their answer about how I wanted how interested I was in predicting the future of commodities and blah, blah, blah. And I like stumbled on it and I just kind of laughed. And I was like, man, I just want a job. I guess I'm just here for a job or something. I just kind of dipped out. He looked at me and was like, well, maybe this isn't for you. I go, yeah, this isn't for me, huh? And then I left and I threw my, I threw my br- briefcase away. <laughs> I actually threw it in the river, which is really dramatic. And that's littering. But I did that. I walked down to the Hudson River and I just threw it in there. And I said, fuck this. I'm not going back. And, um, I applied to acting schools, and that was kind of the end of that. That's an interesting process that you went through. And at some point, even with the acting school, you decided to focus. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of acting. There's a lot of television shows. You've been on movies, Broadway, etc. But you focused on comedy, obviously. And in the Laugh Factory on their website, you, I guess, have the most number of videos on the Laugh Factory YouTube channel. Really? Yeah. I think there's over 50 of them. And huh. yeah, so that's pretty impressive. But uh, clearly, what was the determinant for you to focus? Not not obviously, obviously you were focusing on acting, et cetera, but comedy particularly. What tickled your fancy, I guess, wh- about comedy that led you down that path? Because you're, you're an atypical comedian in this sense, in the looks department. You look normal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have like really crazy eyes and a big nose and hair. <laughs> um, well, I think that, for me, when I got out of NYU grad school for acting, I was really enthralled to the idea of doing new plays. And new plays really fit me in terms of my passion, what I wanted to do, because it was very creative. When you're, usually when you're an actor working on a new project, you have a lot of input creatively. And I was a very, and since I'm a writer, I was very kind of involved with a lot of the writing and creation of a bunch of new plays. One play that I helped co-write ended up be shortlisted for a Pulitzer. They won a bunch of awards. You know, and then you find out, and then you go, don't get credit for it. And you're like, huh, this guy just basically stole my work. That's fascinating. And now he's like the toast of the town. Um, there's a play I did called Gross and Decent. You guys, Moises Coffin was my first play, and I co wrote it, and I got no credit. And that kind of started bumming me out, stuff like that. So there were two things that was going on when you do new plays. Either you sort of help write the play, help create the play, and your ideas would contribute to the fabric of the play, and you get no credit, or if you came in really passionate, enthusiastic with the right ideas, you have playwrights who were like, don't change one word of what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So I did a play called Burning Blue. It later became a movie. And I named names. This guy, DMW Greer, was a, he was a, the writer of this play. And I was getting great notices. The New York Times said that I was the best thing in the New York stage that fall. It was a part of a lifetime for me. It, was just, it just fit me perfectly, the type of role. And, but there were problems with the play, and there were ways to make it better, and ways to make it funnier, and there's a line that I thought would be funnier if I changed one word in it, and I'd been doing the play for like a month, and I said, can I just change this one word in this one part just to make it funnier? Finally, after begging him, he, he agreed, and I did it, and it brought down the house and made the part so much funnier, made the scene so much funnier, and... Then the next day, he told me to change it back. And then he just said, why? It's working. It doesn't matter. I don't care if it's working. Do what I say. And that type of mentality just really... And I ended up getting fired from that play for a bunch of... That's another story. You can Google Bill Dawes and Naked Aggression and see that one. But it just kind of started landing on me like, I don't want to be told by directors and 
writers that what I have to say, what I think about, and what line I want to do is not as good as what they wrote when I know that they're wrong. I said, I think I'm pretty funny. So a friend of mine was doing stand-up, and he said, why don't you come try stand-up? This would be great for you. And most of my you know, interest in doing stand-up was very physical at first. Like I like clowns like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. So I think the first time I got on stage, I was really drunk, and I just did like somersaults and flips and kicks in the air and a bunch of dumb crack like that, and no one really laughed. But it was still fun, and it still made me realize, like, wow, you can really kind of do anything you want as a stand-up comic. You can really create whatever world you want to up here. And so then I started focusing on that, and I kept doing it. But for me, it was such an outlet and such a release. I never really thought of it as a career. My career was always an actor in my head, and it wasn't for several years later where I started going, like, wait a second. Maybe I should really focus on this a little, bit, a little bit more, you know? That's a great explanation. And I was thinking about your first play that you mentioned about co-writing, and then you didn't get the credit. Did you ever think about taking legal action? You know, at that time, I'm a kid out of school. I'm 23 years old, and I'd agreed to do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I never, I didn't have, I'm not from that type of family, <laughs> I'm not that type of world. You're like, from a family of doctors, not lawyers. In other words. Well, my, you know, but my, but my dad was like a lowly bureaucrat and my mom was a housewife and we just weren't the, we, you know, the idea of suing someone for something was like, no, you just keep your head down and you do your work. There was no idea. I think if I was from a different family, I think, yeah, that could have been a thing that would have been pursued. It was kind of a bummer because this guy became like a huge, you know, director and, 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 and New York and just kind of, Nobody knew that the play that set him off was something that, because he, he didn't even speak English as a first language. So I kind of wrote it for him. You know, I kind of compiled and wrote the play for him. And so he, it just was kind of a bummer that he didn't. But then I just realized, like, oh, that's the game. Right. The game isn't necessarily about what's real and what's authentic. It's about how you play it, what you can convince people of, and cult of personality, and blah, blah, blah. And I just believe, I was like, if I just keep working hard, like what goes around comes around. You know, I'll be, I'll be recognized. And, you know, in, in general, I, I find that the good outweighs the bad and that the people that take advantage of you will be outweighed by the people who believe in you and help you out. And I've also had a lot of great experiences where someone is working on a script for a big company, a big studio, and they go, Hey man, I know you're a good writer. I'll pay you $15,000 to help me ghostwrite the script with no credit, but Hey, $15,000 is worth it. Yeah. And at least you know up front what's happening. Yeah. yeah. So you do things for love or money. And for me, for, yeah, for the play, you know, it, it's a bummer that I didn't get credit because the play is still considered one of, like, one of the great American plays in the past, like, 20 years. But, um, <clears throat> and I won't have credit for it. But at the, at the same time, it's, that's just not my journey, you know. Well, let's take a break. My guest is actor, comic, and writer Bill Dawes. He's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas January 7th through the 10th. For ticket information, go to troplv.com. And for everything about Bill Dawes, Go to Bill Dawes, D-A-W-E-S, BillDawes.com, and you can follow him on Instagram at Bill Dawes. And don't forget the After Laugh podcast, which we'll talk about. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. There's something new at the Neon Museum. The emerging technology of light mapping brings old signs back to life. Forgotten artifacts of our past that once blazed in the Las Vegas night are reanimated in a dazzling immersion of sight and sound. You've never seen anything like it because there's never been anything like it. Brilliant, a neon museum experience. 
performances nightly, join the experience now at neonmuseum.org. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with actor, comic, and writer Bill Dawes. He's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas, January 7th through the 10th. For ticket information, go to troplv.com. And for everything about Bill Dawes, go to billdawes.com. And you can follow him on Instagram at Bill Dawes and the After Laugh podcast. And let's talk a little bit about the podcast, and I'll talk to you more about comedy. But while we're on the subject, mm-hmm. well, that is comedy. So After Laugh podcast is you hosting. And tell us a little bit about the podcast. Well, the reason the podcast came about is I was living in New York, and I had done pretty well in New York doing theater. I'd done some breakdancing commercials. So I owned an apartment in Manhattan. And I'd lived in this apartment I owned since the year 2000 when I got out of school. And I was airbnb it because I was traveling a lot. And I had a roommate who was traveling a lot. And my co-op, who was helmed by this asshole who just really wasn't a good guy, he just didn't like my lifestyle or my friend's lifestyle. I think he was just an old, lonely, bitter man. And he um, decided to... Uh, evict me. So he set up this eviction sort of without telling me. And I said, I got to fight this eviction. This is unjust. Like I am allowed to legally Airbnb, but co-ops have different rules. They don't have rules, the same rules of a housing department. So as I was going through court, lawyers wouldn't take my case. I finally found a lawyer to take my case. And this guy ended up being really shady. And he ended up putting a lien on my apartment while he was defending me. He, would, he refused to settle. He never sent me a bill. And I finally had to fire him, and he put like a $150,000 lien on my apartment. Whoa. And then the co-op found out, and they doubled their lawyer's fees. So I ended up, you know, I had this million-dollar apartment in Manhattan that I sold, and I left with like $100,000 because of how screwed I got by this. So when I came to L.A. after that, the owner of the Laugh Factory, Jamie Masada, who's always been like a father figure and a mentor to me, he said... There's this teeny little apartment in one of the buildings he owns. He said, I'll, you know, I'll give you a good deal. I said, I'll stay here if I can fix it, if I can turn the yard into a podcast space and do a podcast. And so he agreed, and I just built this podcast kind of studio in my yard. And the idea was sort of, I think the idea was initially about, I, it was such a bad space in my life when I lost all my life savings and everything and every penny I'd earned on this apartment and I was living here just like, what do you do after, after something like this? Like after your life doesn't seem so funny. So after laugh was kind of starting off as like, I wanted to talk to like the serious side of comedy, the serious side of being an, an artist and a gigger and a freelancer and what, what's entailed by a life like this. And then it was also combined with taking comics who were doing shows at the laugh factory, which is literally 40 feet away from my apartment, from my yard. And interviewing them after their shows because a lot of times after you do a show you have all this energy and all these endorphins and dopamine rush around and your brain's on fire and like what a perfect time to interview someone when they're in that space but then i found that that didn't really <laughs> that didn't really play out as i thought people would finish the shows and sometimes they'd be very quiet introspective and didn't really want to talk so then it just kind of morphed into just a general interview format which actually kind of worked during quarantine because it was always outside and always social distance in my yard, and it's still easy to keep it going for the past eight months, despite the quarantine, because, you know, convince people, hey, it's in the yard, you can wear a mask, we're not going to be less than seven feet apart, 
and you and, didn't have to worry about soundproofing. Yeah, it's weird. The, the way that this place is set up in my yard, there's a giant billboard kind of that's sort of buttressed in my backyard that is a perfect like mini soundstage. So every once in a while, there's a helicopter that comes by or like a fire engine. But I think that just adds to the, to the podcast in my mind. Yeah, it's interesting. And I assume you, even though you don't necessarily get the comedians or comics after the shows, you still get people on who are willing to come by sit in the yard, social distancing, and, and talk about things. Yeah, exactly. And when, when it started off, it was definitely like that. It was after shows, and people would come by the yard after shows, and people would come and go, and there'd be booze, and there'd be weed. And of course, you know, I started this right when weed was legal, so that's perfect. And then um, it just got a little, <laughs> not out of hand, but I realized, like, wow, when you have like four or five people on the mic jumping back and forth, smoking weed and drinking booze, like, it's a fun idea for a party but just as an audio format that's that's tough to so it just became mostly just one-on-one interview show which is which just suits me because i'm just always very curious about how people how successful people i mean kind of like what you do now like how people create their world and how they create their craft and how they come from being an aerospace engineer to being a comic i mean the stories that you hear from different people like like you know one guy that i interviewed recently who's a buddy of mine he was he was running a major um, drug operation for years, and he got busted, went to jail, got married, and he was going to go back into the drug operation because he was making so little money as a bouncer. And then he heard about a comedy competition for BET, and then he went and did the comedy competition, and he won. And now he's a comic, but he was literally like an inch away from going back to selling to running a drug uh, cart, mini drug cartel. Yeah, that's an amazing transition. Yeah, so there's a lot of stories like that that I find that comics in particular have stories like that that are very unique and very interesting. Like no one, it's very rare that someone says, yeah, I was five years old, I wanted to be a comic, and I just started doing comedy and open mics, and now I'm a comic. Usually people get to comedy in a very circumlocutious way, like they were engineers, or sometimes they're on Wall Street, or they're lawyers, like Greg Giraldo, quit their job, and they change their life, and they decide to put it all, you know, there's, it's, it's a very interesting journey becoming a comic and then staying a comic is an even more interesting for me because it's because everything in the world is going to tell you not to stay a comic right you know right do you find though that you learn a lot from them and that helps you with your own journey yeah i mean i don't know if it helps me in terms of me as a comic learning how to do comedy or be a comic it's just well more to fill you out in terms of your own history and your, the rest of your life, not necessarily the comedy career, but in I, general, I, I think yeah. I'm saying. I, I think in general, it just makes you, when you talk to all these people, there is a similar feeling. And I've talked to, if you look at the list of people I have my podcast, it, it's very wide. I have people who, I have showrunners for Will and Grace and, for, and writers for Friends, and I have TV stars and I have movie stars and I have huge comedy headliners and like Jerry Piven and Jay Moore and Garrett Dillahan and Mark Forrestine, people from Ginger Gonzaga, people from all over the spectrum of success in this field and doing all sorts. And, and the one thing I find is that everyone and the people that I find interesting, they're always, you never land. They're always moving forward and they're always looking for something else. And they're always feeling like, Oh, I want to try this thing. And I want to try that thing. And now this journey, like my friend, one of my most recent interviews was Chris Sullivan, who's on This Is Us. And we, were, we did a, a Broadway show together almost 10 years ago. And from that Broadway show, now he's on 
he's a regular one of the biggest network TV shows in the past decade or two. So he's, by all accounts, he's quote-unquote made it, but, you know, what he's doing right now is focusing on his musical career. He wants, he's starting a band, and that's his real passion. And he's also doing a podcast and advocacy and activism, and he has a kid, so everything became about, like, his kid and starting his music, and he played acoustically. So you, you never really, the idea of, of making it is such a bizarre term, and I just don't think it really holds with anyone I respect because you've never made it. You're always in a space where you're just looking for work that inspires you, no matter at any age. So what does making it mean? If you're able to do that at all in your life, you've made it. Even if you have another job or you do an Uber, or you do something else, or you know, a lot of these actors that are on TV shows what they're doing on the TV show is not inspiring to them. It's just, it is a, just a money gig. They show up, they say they're, you know, five lines, they sit in the trailer all day and they go home and they get great paychecks, but there's nothing about it artistically that inspires them. So they do other things. They write, they create, they direct. Cause that's, at the end of the day, like that is so, it's a million times more satisfying than, um, than just being on a show and raking in the dough as much as that's great. But all my friends who are, in that position, super rich that way. It's the least inspiring thing about their career. What's really inspiring is everything else that that affords them to do and around that. And that may sound like a little dumb, but it's sort of like it's like our our rosebud, you know, our Citizen Kane rosebud is going back to those days where you are creating new plays, and the first time you do stand up, and the first time you you know are part of a film that you help write and produce, and it, it premieres at South by Southwest and things like that. It's um. That is just much more interesting than the idea of making it because when you talk to people who are really doing well, I feel like they're the same way. They're just constantly on the journey of self-discovery and exploration creatively to figure out what it is that like makes makes the world interesting to them. You did know? your did your guests reinforce that with you, or did you have that in your mind before you started having guests? <sighs> interesting. I think that I used to I. I I, I think that the guests really reinforce that to me because sometimes I don't know what I was expecting from the more kind of famous people I had and the more successful people I had. But the truth is their stories and the way they talk about stuff and their journeys, they're the same as the guy who's been doing comedy for three years and just starting out. It's the same idea about this thing that I'm creating, this thing that I want to do. And here's an idea. Um, I mean, I do think that if you look at someone like Chris Sullivan, who has, you know, he's made it by any metric at this point with This Is Us and then Gardens of the Galaxy and, and all a slew of other things. But I said, what I go, if, if you could, if you had to pick one, what would it be? He just said, you know, I'd go back to Chicago and do theater because it's just a great life. It's a great community. It's supportive. You get to really be a part of stuff that you believe in, you create. And if that's all there was and money wasn't an issue, it was like, I'd go back to Chicago to do theater and just have, have my family there. And then you talk to people who, are, who haven't made that. They're like, I just want to be the lead in a, in a movie or the lead in a series. And I think that's going to answer all their questions. you know. And I think that is just sort of the weird rope-a-dope that Hollywood does. And you, you're led to believe that if you, quote-unquote, make it, if you land, like that's it. Now you're done. Now you can just go to Mexico and sip coconut water on the beach. <laughs> and then you're like, who the, who the hell wants to sip coconut water on the beach in Mexico? No, I want to work on something else. You're making a lot of sense. And for those people who are disciplined and who are in a movie or a TV series, while they're in their trailer during takes, they could be writing and 
a play or a novel or an article yeah. or whatever. So, oh yeah, a lot. Yeah. I mean, so so many people that I know early on in New York, like Clark Gregg and Tom McCarthy, they were they were doing plays in New York. And in the wings, when they were not doing their plays, they were just sitting. They were always writing. They were, they brought their computers to the dressing table and they were just sitting there writing in between, you know. And Tom McCarthy ended up, of course, winning an Oscar for Spotlight, and Clark Gregg just written tons of movies and tons of TV shows. And he's also a very successful actor. So I think that is, yeah. I mean, the thing that I always tell people, and I'm not, I'm not a good example of this, but I recognize it, is that the the business is wide open for people who who really help themselves. If you really have the discipline, and you sh- and you show up and you work on this stuff the way you work on your social media and you work on your Instagram or work on chasing skirts. If you work on it in the same way, put the energy into like writing, like it's there. The world is wide open. I mean, the amount of people like, hey man, what do I do? How do I do? I go, well, you want to do something? You want to create something? Yeah, man, I know I'm smart, I'm talented. I was like, YouTube is a free production studio and it's free. And all you need is an iPhone. You have an iPhone and YouTube, you can pretty much do whatever you want without, with very little money. You can make you can show off your acting, you can create scenes, you can like, but no, no, people aren't willing to do that. So when all these people are like, hey man, what do I do? How do I get into acting? I'm like, it's right, there's a, there's a, a studio called YouTube that you can do whatever you want, and there's an iPhone that you have that you can do whatever you want. So done. The rest is just your ability to, to do it. Yeah, that's the key, the, the, the will to do it and the discipline to do it. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest is an actor, comic, and writer. Bill Dawes. He's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas. <laughs> I feel like I said nothing funny at all during this interview. <laughs> no, no, you did. You did. But I like the fact that you talked in a lot of other areas as well. My guest has been actor, comic, and writer Bill Dawes. He's headlining in the Laugh Factory at the Tropicana Las Vegas, January 7th through the 10th. For ticket information, go to TropLV.com. And for everything about Bill Dawes, go to Bill Dawes. That's D-A-W-E-S. BillDawes.com. And you can follow him on Instagram at Bill Dawes. And don't forget the After Laugh podcast as well. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ira. I had a great time. Thanks. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Bring us your fantasy, LB.